You're listening to the All In Podcast with your hosts, Shane and Blake, giving you a new perspective on the dental industry. Are you ready to go all in? Let's do this. Let's do this. Let's do this. Welcome to the All In Podcast, the podcast that brings you a new perspective on the dental industry. I am one of your hosts, Shane McElroy, and joined as always by my partner in crime, Blake McClellan. How you doing, Blake? Hey guys, I'm not so well. Shane doesn't know how to do a podcast recording. So this is try number 13, I think. <laughs> <laughs> of this one episode, yeah. No, we, we so a little backstory. We tried to do this episode live in studio. Stephen London came down, flew in. We did it in this really cool setup at this shared workspace. And it was too much, too much technology for our stupid selves. So we botched it and now we're doing it over again but uh hopefully this one will be a little bit better than the last one a little bit more prepped what blake is actually saying we stupid selves he's referring to stupid shane yeah but i've learned as a ceo when you talk about anything you don't use i you got to say weak so it makes like make it sound like you're taking part of the responsibility but really it's my like condescending way of saying it's all your fault (laughs) (laughs) well to be fair it was i I didn't triple check and i saw little waves come up and all these little buttons on here lighting up so it sounded good to me or look good, but uh, yeah, it didn't work out. I think it was supposed to be a setup for get it, and you went all Diplo on it, and you know, it just it just it got all botched. So yeah, two point <laughs> I didn't think audio is that difficult, but I think it is for me. Anyways, I was bummed though because we had such a good recording with Steve London, and he's a really good friend of mine. He works with me at BioHorizons, but he's one of the most interesting guys you will ever talk to, just from his background, his abilities, his relationships out there in dental. It, it, it was a fun episode to record, so I hope we can recreate some of that magic here. Yeah, you know, I really found him to be someone that I could really relate to, and in the industry, in a sense of he's not doing it because he has to; he's doing it because he wants to. And that's so rare in our industry. So I, I think that everybody's going to really enjoy this and this perspective because it's authentic. And, and in a time where we're all, you know, we think salesmen are just these gimmicky car salesmen that are out there just to take a buck from you and to thinking that doctors are just jerks and they don't work with you uh, unless you buy them something or you do something for them. I think Stephen's a good example, just like you, Shane, of, of what a healthy rep and clinician relationship could look like and how the reps out there in the field can be successful without looking at it from a monetary standpoint, but from an overall happiness and enjoyment and fulfillment perspective. Well, I'll take the comparison, but uh, he's one of the best I've ever seen. I've oh, done better than you. I wasn't giving you, I wouldn't put you on his level, but yeah, yeah. Well, that's fair. I, I've done pretty well in sales uh, over my career. And this guy came in years after I'd already started and came in and just, just destroyed it, man. Continually took an area in the middle of nowhere, Kentucky, and just blew it up, man. Uh, it is a beast of a territory now. Not only that, he is a resource for me and all the reps out in the field on anything digital, but even more so than that, the highest C level at, at BioHorizons refers to him on anything digital. It's kind of crazy. Well, without further ado, Mr. Steve London, how are you, Steve? You're doing fantastic. How's it going, guys? Much better, you know, uh, now that we've actually got some working software. You know, this time around, we won't waste your time, hopefully. <laughs> no, it wasn't a waste of time. I, you know, I was very appreciative that you guys sent the, uh, the implant MBA jet up to Kentucky to pick me up to bring me down to Atlanta that, a couple weeks ago. That was great. That's how we roll, baby. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That would be so sick. Uh, where are you right now? I'm actually in Miami, down in South Beach. Roughing it, I suppose. No, my, my wife is a uh, salon owner along with a speaker in the salon industry, and she is speaking at a leadership conference um, this weekend down here in South Beach. So I tagged along, and this is probably the 
fourth leadership conference that I've attended with her. And it's pretty interesting how much crossover there is from the salon industry over into our world in the dental. So um, I just actually got out of a three hour uh, hands on leadership course that was probably one of the best I've ever sat through. Let me, since you're on the topic, let me ask you who gets the higher honorariums, salons or dentist? Uh, dentist. Okay. Okay. Yep. So we're still hanging yep. on. Yep. I will say this though. Lindsay, uh, Steve's wife is one of the, the funnest people you ever meet. My wife and I got to party them a little bit out in, uh, where were we at? In the Bahamas? In Nassau. Uh-huh. Yeah. It was, uh, from what I recall, we had a really, really good time. <laughs> Sounds like my wedding. <laughs> So, Steve, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and not just your dental career, but how you got into dental. You started out as a college basketball player, I think, at University of Cincinnati. Take us from there, kind of a fast-forward version of your career and your path so far. Sure. Uh, Spent some time at the University of Cincinnati, some of the time at Middle Tennessee State, some time at the University of Louisville. Um, Father was pretty high up with the bank, got into banking, corporate banking, retail banking, uh, just decided it kind of really wasn't my uh, forte. Uh, really enjoyed it, but it was a little too conservative for me, so to speak. Got into politics for a little bit. Got into subprime mortgage lending uh, before it crashed. Then went back into retail banking and business banking and uh, had a uh, colleague of mine uh, reach out to me that one of his business partners was a branch manager with Panderson Dental. Um, wanted to sit down and talk to me about, uh, you know, CAD cam and, uh, medical sales, so to speak. And that's kind of how I jumped into it head first. So let me touch base on that. Cause you kind of just passed through two major points. And for most people, I would think is I dabbled in politics and then dabbled in subprime lending. So what, how long were you in politics and what did you do? Were you city council? Were you, you know, and on the ticket for governor? What, what was that? Unfortunately, I have too much of a past that can be dug up, so I can't run for office. But uh, I, I, w- <laughs> I just I worked for a small lobbyist uh, law firm that was uh, basically in charge of Regulation Z and Regulation D for the banking industry. And when you lobby, what does that kind of mean? Does that mean you're 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 going on Capitol Hill and you're standing with a big sign protesting, or you whining and dining, you know, important people? What does that What does that look like? No, basically what you're doing is is you are trying to persuade peoples of Congress and peoples of the Senate to uh, vote in your favor for an upcoming bill or anything along those lines. By persuade, you mean sliding them a check? <laughs> well, I will tell you this. I learned a lot of things in my, you know, I just turned 40, learned a lot of things in my professional career. Some of them I will speak on, some of them I won't. But I will tell you the closest thing to it that I've ever seen is the TV show that was on Netflix, House of Cards. Oh, so right. if you've ever if you've ever seen House of Cards, that's the closest thing I could tell you to come into the truth. That's one of my favorite shows. You know, they say that that was uh, supposed to be, I think, the Clintons that they were referencing to in that, if I'm not mistaken. Doesn't surprise me. Loosely based on them. But uh, yeah, you know, it, it's interesting how it's applicable, I would say, into our industry as well. Because I think that a lot of people are lobbying the big organizations, right? I think that you realize that these companies are influencing a lot of these nonprofit organizations that host conferences or you know meetings and things like that. 
you know, you're seeing that the lobbying takes place there. I mean, look at the Delta Dental thing that was blasted all over the ADA pamphlet that Brian Balawas had put out out there on social media. I think every dentist hates Delta Dental in my, from that I've worked you know, encountered, yet they still have high involvement in, in representation at all of these events. So I think, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of application from that field to this uh, that you've seen. Yes, there is. And in fact, the interesting thing is, is for the longest time coming out of college, you know, I just kind of wanted to do my own thing. I didn't want to do it based off of my last name or who my father was or who my family had connections with or anything like that. And I went on that way for about a year to year and a half. And then I just realized everybody else is doing this, but I'm not going to do this because everybody else is doing it. Let me do it my way. So therefore I can still be authentic and I can still be myself. And then that way I can create my own network. So how long have you actually been in the dental field now? The end of December will mark four years. And I was with Patterson and Serona for almost four years. So it'll be eight years, eight years this de- this December. And you got in really deep as far as like being an expert on Serona technology, digital technology in general, did some stuff with Sarek. Can you take us a little bit through your, your track to learn all that technology so quickly? What drove you to do it and kind of where that's taken you in your career? Yeah. So I started off as a CIRIC specialist with Patterson Dental and, you know, kind of jumped into it head first, really loved the technology. One of the first things I thought to myself was, why doesn't everybody have this? Especially for being somebody who had needed a crown done before I had gotten into the industry. And then through my networking and meeting people and doing things on my own, I got into a little bit of R&D and some beta testing and then took it to the next level and got into comb beam, not only with CAD CAM and comb beam, but not not just clinically, but through the research side as well. Um, one of my favorite stories to tell is I'm real big on trying to find out what the other competitor is doing. And a lot of times the best way to figure out what type of technology is best for you as the doctor is the, you know, the Chicago Midwinter or the, or the Atlanta uh, Hinman dental meeting. And so every year, um, I signed up as a dental student, paid $10, and I got a dental student badge to attend the Chicago Midwinter. And so when I would walk around the floor, I would tell everybody that I would come into contact with this for our salespeople. I'm a fourth-year dental student getting ready to take over my father's practice. Explain to me what Itero can do for me or explain to me what 3Shape can do for me or explain to me what instrumentarian comb beam can do for me. And then this way, I was actually getting the true data on what the machines would do and not what I'm reading about on social media or reading about on the internet and stuff like that. And it's, it, I didn't use it to sell against them. I used it because there were a lot of times in my sales career where Cirrus was not the right option for that doctor. Itero was, or 3Shape was, or E4D was. I wanted to take it upon myself to find out the true information and not just deal with what we call the salesman vomit of uh, what they want you to hear and what they maybe read about on some blog somewhere. Which, uh, let me ask you that on that, how do clinicians listening right now, how are they going to be able to get past the bullshit and get right to what they want to know? What's the easiest way in your experience? Like as an inside guy, what would you tell them? Because, you know, you look at just like even implants, right? I mean, even the implant space, we've all got the data that makes them sound really great. But I think it comes down to the little in, in, intrinsic little things that the the system offers or the re- relationship with the rep. There are different things that should be factored in when making a buying decision. So how does a clinician straight out of school make an educated decision on what the best thing is for them? Where do you think that that open fair marketplace is? What, what, what is that? Social media? Conferences? 
Well, I think conferences are the first. I've attended the I've attended the ADA, I've attended the Hinman, I've attended the Chicago Midwinter. And I always tell doctors this. At the at the beginning, what I want you to do is I want you to walk around to each uh, booth of whatever it is you're looking for, CAD CAM, cone beam, 3D printing. And I want you to start asking questions and I want you to play with the technology. I don't want you to ask any questions about what anything costs. Then once you've gone through everything you've seen on the floor and everything you want to see, then write down a list. Okay, I like this, I like this, and I like this. Then go back and find out what they cost. Because I think the problem that we make in dentistry is we base everything off of price. Well, I'm not going to buy this implant because it's $250. I'm going to buy this implant because it's $199. Oh, yeah. You can get Israeli implants for 30 bucks on eBay right now. No problem. <laughs> you can get exactly what you want out of that. <laughs> But, but I, I think the problem is, is that that's, that's what we do, and that's human nature. And that's kind of what our industry has learned from the generation before them and what they've learned at the dental school. is cheap and cheap shit ain't good. That's the rule in my book. Correct. And because you, know, you and I have had this conversation during the first recording that you know, at the end of the day, the rep brings a lot of value. So I'm okay with paying 10, 15, 20% more because I know the person I'm talking to who's in my inner circle is giving me the right data and is leading me down the right path. So I think that is the best thing to do overall. Every time, what's interesting is, is that I get more CAD CAM and cone beam phone calls now than I ever did when I, when I sold the products. And I think a lot of that is because I have a reputation in my state that I am kind of the guru or the expert, and I'm not going to lead you down the wrong path. But then again, at the end of the day, I don't have salesmen behind my name. But what a lot of these guys that are calling me don't understand is this is the same information I'm giving you that I would have five years ago that I'm still giving you to this day. Because I think it all depends on what you want to do within your practice. But then again, it also depends on what you want to do in three or four years in your practice, which 99% of our colleagues that we work with in the dental industry have no clue what they want to do in two or three years. I can attest to that too, why he's so busy, because I actually use him as a resource all the time. Anybody's got questions on digital technology or specifically on Steric, I just hand him Steve's card and I said, hey, this is my buddy, use my name, and hopefully he won't get mad at me for doing this, man. But <laughs> he's helped me close a bunch of business that way. It's been awesome. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of the things that I have really preached to the higher ups at our company is that, you know, here we are in the, in the implant industry. And dental implants and technology go hand in hand, you know, first with, with CBCT along with CAD CAM and then now into 3D printing. And so it would behoove us to be the first of the market with a full digital platform workflow for every CAD CAM system on the market. Because all of our doctors go out and buy this technology and then they have no one to turn to on how it integrates with either implants or cone beam or anything along those lines. You know, it's funny you say that. I was just having a call with the CEO of Evident and they we were talking about this, the closed systems, you know, all the different products that are out there in these closed systems and how they don't communicate or, you know, you're, you're stuck to that one or maybe it works with this software, but not that one. And the integrations and continuity amongst dentistry is a severe issue. And if someone could solve that problem in an easy button on the workflow in digital dentistry, I think that is the king. That'll be the king, right? That'll be the market leader for quite some time because the easy button is not there. I mean, you got to go over to ExoCAD and you got to do it here. You're planning in Blue Sky Bio or whatever you may be. I think that you've got to be an introvert in order to successfully do digital workflow fully from A to Z. I, I completely agree. Along with the same comment that I would make with CAD CAM, the reason why 
CAD CAM isn't standard of care right now is because the distributors who distribute the product don't have a training protocol in place. And what I mean by that is, is that one of the biggest things that I saw at Patterson was, you know, the corporate philosophy was sell the sell the Cerec machine and move on to the next office. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way with a salesperson like myself who actually cares. Sure. So I'm supposed to sell a $150,000 piece of equipment that completely changes the way this dentist practices and the way they were taught to practice. I'm just supposed to sell it to them, drop it off and see you later and leave it up to their territory rep. Well, the territory rep that's got 10,000 products that they're supposed to sell in that catalog, it, it, it doesn't work that way. Well, let me ask you this. The dynamic difference between a capital equipment, big box retailer like a Shine Patterson Benko, applying all the things under the sun to being an implant rep, what is that comparison like? What, what would you say some of the big differences are from going from that to this? It's, it's night and day. Working for the actual company that makes the product is night and day difference. And I mean that from uh, marketing, I mean it from logistics. Um, I mean, I'm actually in control now where when I was with Patterson with Cirrus, it was up to this product's on back order and what Serona is going to tell me and when does it, when can someone come in and service it and when can someone do this? And no, we have to do it this way because that's Serona's protocol and blah, 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 blah. So actually working for the company that actually makes it is a night and day difference. Well, I would say this too, from my experience working with Meisinger when I was traveling with Patterson and Shine and Binko reps, having direct control of the sale. Uh, my territory dropped off 50% when I left, which showed me I wasn't great at teaching other people how to sell my particular product. When you have full control of it, that's either really good for you or really bad for you, depending on your skill set. Would you agree with that, Steve? I, I would, but but I would also say that you leaving and, and that market dropping 50%, a lot of that has to be you know, kudos to you and the relationships and the things that you did in order to do that. I mean, you take a look at, you know, you brought this up in the intro. When I took over this territory in Kentucky, it was 640 grand was my quota. And I'm on track to make 2.3, $2.4 million this year. So less than four years and what we've turned around. And, you know, and I, and I get knocked on all the time in my market. Well, you know, he's, he's only working with GPs and so on and so on. Uh, well, that, that is true. But at the end of the day, I handle a GP the same way I handle a surgeon. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but every single company's marketing strategy is to GPs because it's your numbers. So no matter what company you think you're working with or they don't work with, the, they're dumping thousands and thousands of dollars in ads and support into getting GPs in the market because at the end of the day, it's inevitable and it's happening. So I don't think that that should be a negative thing towards you at all. I, I agree, but but that that is the... That is the most popular negative thing that is said about me is that. And my response is this, is look, at the end of the day, if I'm talking to one of my oral surgeons, hey, I'm going to get the conversation. One of your referrals is going to bring it up. Hey, where do you, where would you recommend to go for an implant course? Well, the great thing about my background is I wanted to be a dentist. I took the DAT. I got accepted. Um, and I used my Serona name badge to take Mish's course to took guards course in the Dominican, uh, to go to Picos, uh, to go to Resnick's course, to do the maxi course, to do the Midwest course. You know, I even went to Pakistan and got to place implants for three days. What do you want me to say? Do you want me to tell them that I don't have a course for them? Um, or do you want me to send them to the course that I think is the best that's out there and then I can handhold them the whole way through it just like I do with you? 
Yeah, I had the same issues, Steve, back in the day when I first started my nothing territory and, and I had specialists saying, well, you're selling to GPs. I, the truth is I'll sell to anybody buys because they'll call into corporate or they'll buy for my competitor who's selling implants to you. So sometimes it's good to give the control, be like, listen, I'll send them to a course. I'm coming to you first. You know, what do you want me to do? If they go to the course I recommend, if they end up playing BioRisons, I can advise them on what they should and shouldn't do and connect you still and, and keep that relationship alive. That's a, it's a tough game we got to play sometimes. It, it is. But the things that the that the specialists don't understand is the older generation specialist will say, well, they should not be placing implants. I should be placing implants. I'm the implantologist, blah, 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 blah. Okay, I agree with you. But you're also the same specialist that's asking me behind closed doors why you can't keep referrals. Right. So my So my response is always like this. Listen, you have to play in the sandbox. They're going to go out and they're going to do whatever they want, regardless of what of what you tell them or don't tell them. Right. So would you rather want me hand holding them and helping them, you know, being able to continue to refer to you? Because if you look at the analytical data that's out there, it's just like Invisalign. The orthodontists love it when Invisalign come in town because the general dentists go out, they take the two or three day course, they see more, they diagnose more. They're educated in some of the stuff that they need to look for. They're not going to be cowboys. They're still going to refer to the orthodontist in in certain situations, but they're looking for another ROI. And so you've got to learn to team up. So if a general dentist accidentally puts an implant in the sinus, do you think when they call you to ask you for their help that they're going to, that they want to listen to you belittle them? No. If you tell them, hey, bring the patient over or I'm on my way over there right now to help you out, you bail them out, they'll never forget that. They will refer to you to the day they die. No, that's a good point. I think if they, if you become their knowledge source and their expert, okay, sure, they take some onesies and twosies from you, but they're more motivated to market and dump some ad dollars in the implants, and it may increase your overall cases referred from that clinician. Because of like course. you just said, if it goes in the sinus or whatever, or their difficult case or a full arch, they're going to you. And maybe they'll take the easy cookie cutter cases, but they're not going to take the, the the more challenging ones, which I know that's not optimal. But at the end of the day, they're going to send you the business versus you shunning them, telling them you're not going to support them, not put any educational courses on, and then going to just you know refer to some, Jeep, some specialist who's maybe an hour away because they don't want to work with you anymore. And that's the big thing that we have to revolve in in our industry is change. And the older generation has a hard time with it. You know, one of the things we talked about a couple of weeks ago was the older generation was taught that they sell their practice when they retire. So there's no reason to have a big retirement nest egg, so to speak. Well, what what that generation didn't plan for was the fact that the kids coming out of school now have a quarter of a million dollars in debt. Right. And so we have to evolve and we have to accept change. And that's where we have to lean on people in our industry to help us with those changes and just get us through that. Yeah. I think to your point, the guys, the surgeons I see being most successful are the ones taking the GPs under their wing and I'll show you how to do it, man. And the, they're smart because what ends up happening, and I've seen this firsthand, is the guys who learn how to do the slam dunk cases end up recognizing more cases, yep. like you said. They end up referring even more cases, and then they start referring the big full arch cases as well. And so it becomes an even better referral as long as you know it's not a cowboy and you're you're not wagging their finger at them and saying, "No, you shouldn't do that. You should do this." It's the same thing too for you know being the reps and the clinicians, right? Building, letting these reps work with other, you know, specialists or GPs and stop being like, I've got to own you. You only work with me. You're only doing my courses, you know, just embrace it. And the more you embrace it, the cooler you seem and real recognizes real. And I think that's the most thing that that's the most beneficial thing you could do for yourself as a personal brand 
in dentistry is just be real and look at the John Coyce of the world and these guys who are doing a great job at just teaching and and they still had great you know clinical careers as well but I don't think that there's anything that'll hurt you from teaching another clinician how to do something better. Completely agree. Then that way they know that they they that you're their safety blanket in case something happens. Because let's be honest, would you rather have a specialist be your safety blanket or would you rather have the implant rep? Right. Right. I am a marketing major. You probably want to ask the doctor. Right. Now, now, don't get me wrong. The three of us will put our scrubs on and go in the OR and get dirty and do what we need to do because we like to do that. But we are very select few people that actually enjoy doing that. I mean, it blows my mind when I hear some of the girls in the in the offices say, well, I called such and such and they just it's been three days. They won't call me back. But what? Who doesn't call people back nowadays? That just that blows my mind. You know, in, especially in the era of texting and email and Instagram and everything else you got and all these outlets to contact this person, like, you know, they're on their device. Right. I think that, that a lot of reps like to feel good about being in the medical sales field. So there, there's a, that, that overall just felt self-worth that they get from it. But like you said, guys like us like to throw on the scrubs and be a hero. I think we lo- talked about last time, you know, there's nothing better than feeling of closing a, a deal with a new client that you're excited to work with or finishing a surgery that they had to have you help them with, right? That you were the real hero with after that case, no matter how stressful or whatever it is, you've got to be that executive decision a lot of the times. And it's terrifying because you're not a, a surgeon, nor am I, nor is Shane, but often right. we're put in that predicament and we love that. And that's the greatest thing about it. And that's where I think also you have to have some respect for the reps because Dude, I've got more CE than most, and I'm sure y'all do as well. Like, I, I'm eminent thousands of hours of CE. Everything has been on implant compare I've freaking watched or produced, right? So there is a vast amount of knowledge there, and you got to appreciate and respect that because if you abuse a rep, he's taking that knowledge somewhere else. Yep. And that's a valuable asset that you could have in your practice because you don't have the bandwidth to go and study every system and every little new component that comes out and workflows and technologies. And that's why I think that, you know, Shane and, and, and Steven, you both sell more products for other companies than you do your own company because people see you as leaders in, in, in the industry and experts of, of an opinion. Well, and, and let's talk about that uh, expert opinion. Steve gets me all the inside dirty on the Sarek uh, technology, when it's coming out, what to look for. And didn't Sarah World just happen a couple of days ago, Steve? It did. And this is the um, this is the second one that I have missed in the last eight years. Do you hear any inside stuff of what's coming out? What's cool? A little bit. Uh, I know that they're doing some uh, new stuff with Sarek Ortho. I know that uh, they launched a bunch of stuff with upgrades for PrimeScan, which is a phenomenal product. I know our boy T-Bone did a... Uh, a live surgical case in front of 7,000 dentists on stage. Um, that's about all I really wrapped my head around that I knew that they were going to launch. There was some speculation and some rumors on a lot of other things that were coming out, and I haven't done my due diligence because I'm down here in Miami this weekend, and I, I didn't really follow along the social media feed for a reason. It was kind of one of those things where it's like, I'm glad I didn't go, but now I kind of wish I would have gone, but... I, you know, but you've really the team down as far as giving us inside information. I'm very disappointed in you. I did see a post about uh, with Sully L. Sullivan on there, just preaching with fire. Yes. Man, he looked awesome up there. On I stage. love Sully, man. He's really electric. He does a fantastic job. He does a fantastic job. Yeah, I was laughing at him. He had he had like the orange jumpsuit on. He's the 3D dentist people at Tarun. All those guys were rocking the orange jumpsuit. <laughs> you could see he was like, I don't know if I'm feeling this or not. He had that look on his face, like ah, maybe this is too far. <laughs> well, and the the cool thing about that is, and I got to give T Bone his credit. I mean, 
I mean, who rocks an orange Adidas throwback? I mean, the only thing that they needed were the kicks that went back in the day. Like they, you know, they the, should have had the shell toes. That was the only missing component, man. You got to rock those with the shell toes. Exactly, with no shoelaces, though. If you're really going to do it like Run DMC, you got to do it back with no shoelaces. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to touch on you being a sneakerhead next, but one thing I was going to say I saw at the uh, Serona World was, um, and, and actually I think the Affordable Care had their big meeting at, in Vegas during the same time. So some of my buddies there from uh, DDS Dentures were posting some content, and uh, they were, I think a big thing there for them was the partnership with Carbon, and or well, more or less collaboration with Carbon and Dentsply. So the new 3D printed denture that you know people are you seen on the internet, you know, running over with a car. Uh, I think that we're trying to say that like the 3D denture is here. Now I know there's going to be a lot of improvements and evolution to that, but I think that we're in the first step, the first beta of this digital dentistry uh, or digital denture movement. It's it's about time. Yeah, I mean, it's been a materials issue mainly, really. I mean, that's been the one holdback. But I think now with Carbon and Dentsply and the new material that they came out with i think it was at ids it's supposed to be ready to go now so let's talk about the the sneakers though man what people don't know about london this boy collects more shoes than than i have anything actually <laughs> right how many shoes do, well how many pairs of shoes do you have like collectors uh if i had to do a collaboration i'd say a little over nine thousand. holy hell right, let's ask the better question what's your insurance amount on your shoes because i know you said last time that they're insured what's that a ballpark number uh well so i have it done through lords of london and if not and if people aren't familiar with what lords of london are known for so to speak they uh you know, Peyton Manning had an insurance policy on his on his arm. J Lo had one on her butt. So, Lords of London is one of those uh, insurance companies that will insure on some crazy type of uh, product, so to speak. So, mine's a little over three million. Holy crap! So, obviously, you haven't worn them all, I assume. No, I have not. I, I started doing this when I was about eleven, uh, and then it just kind of you know, grew from there, so to speak. Well, I, kudos to you because I don't think I started making responsible decisions like that to, to, to hold on to something until I was like 20, 21 and barely then. So to be 11 and say, Hey, I need to hold on to this. There's going to be value in this later on. You know, kudos to you. A lot of intelligence there at a young age. Forward thing. I'm not sure anybody would have said, let's collect shoes and call that a good investment. Right. But nowadays, yeah, I, mean, I, I wouldn't say that it was forward thinking. I would say I just kind of stumbled into it. I mean, you know, what a lot of people don't understand about the shoe industry is, you know, Nike is the is the leader in the whole industry. And the negative thing about shoes is out there is that, you know, people are getting shot for wearing, you know, certain Jordans and then getting robbed for them and so on and so on. But one of the crazy thing is that you see the Apple launches every year, like we saw just a month ago. And, you know, you see people standing out in front of, you know, Verizon stores and AT&T stores and Apple stores, you know, just to, to get their new phone. What a lot of people don't understand is that is every footlocker, every champs, every foot action, every Saturday morning at 10 a.m every weekend. And what Nike's really caught on to is it's something that they're doing now um, online on Wednesdays and then Fridays and then Saturdays and so on and so on. So it's it's an unbelievable market. In fact, I saw a statistic the other day that the, the secondary market for Nike creates more revenue than, than the retail numbers that Reebok, Skechers, and Adidas put combined. Holy cow. And the secondary market is not regulated. And so it, it's it's kind of my, my best reference to give on the secondary market for shoes is, you know, if you grew up in the era of baseball cards, you know, you collected baseball cards and then you had a magazine, that Beckett Monthly magazine that said, 
you know, this Ken Griffey Jr. 1989 upper deck card was worth X amount of money. Well, there's really no magazine or anything out there that tells you what they're worth. And to me, it depends on whether or not the shoe is dead stock, which means you've never worn it. It's never been on your foot. Um, if it's a rare shoe, if it's something that they only did a certain run of, if it's the first generation, the second generation, the third generation, it just, it all depends. It all depends on what, what someone's willing to pay too, right? Like I think exactly. uh, we paid 15, we're trying to pay $1,500 to get upgraded to a Delta comfort seat on a flight and you got shut down, right? So it's, it's all what someone's willing to pay. And, and I think that it's, it's really unique how Nike did this artificial demand model. Like they could pump out a million of these shoes if they wanted yep. to, but they choose not to, to drive this value around the brand. I remember, so I ran shoe stores in college. Like right before college, I ran like some uh, famous footwear shoe stores. And then when I went to college, I, I was the GM of this athlete's foot. And man, every single, I'd call him dope boy, every you know weed dealer or whatever in college would pull up to my store on Friday, you know, with the candy paint job and all, and be like, "Yo, let me get them days the day early." And I'm like, "Man, I can't sell you these. Like, you know, Nike will kill me." But long and short, end up working out a deal where they could leave the uh, leave the store with the shoes on Friday, and we would scan the boxes on Saturday. I just kept the boxes. But is that the whole you leave a bag, I'll give you a box? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, my tuition was paid and my rent was paid. That's all I need to worry about. Okay. Well, so, so, so basically, Blake, you're the reason why Athlete's Foot went out of business? Something of that sort, you know? I think they just <laughs> they were missing out on a very lucrative secondary market. Their, their transactions were clean and official, but, you know, <laughs> what I tacked for the uh, urgency supply is, you know, a little different. Yeah. They never paid to go into a club in, in college either, so that was good. Well, I want to say, see, you, you've, you've just got your politics 101 breakdown right there. <laughs> See, as long as you got something that they need then it's a win-win it's all about leverage that's how it works so what is your most valuable pair of shoes that you have would by far be my back to the future too they call them the air mags the, the marty mcfly special right yeah to the point where i do you remember the bag that was in the movie yeah i had i had to buy the bag um so, <laughs> so a couple of years after i was fortunate enough to get a pair of the shoes i ended up finding the bag um, and it was just a prop. It was all it was. It's not, you know, it doesn't open or close like the one in the movie. It's just a prop. So for a guy who's been in, who's lobbied for banks, comes from a family of obviously substantial worth and, and merit and a $3 million shoe collection, why in the hell would you work in the dental industry? What is it that drives you to get up every morning and go do this very challenging and tough job. I mean, what, what is it that motivates you and, and why are you doing what you do? Hold on. I have got a very important question first. Do you have that hoverboard? If I had the hoverboard, Shane, I would have brought that to Atlanta and, and rode that thing from the airport to the first podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right. On to the next question. Um, motivation is the biggest thing for me. I mean, I, I live... I live my life based off of the Steve Jobs motto, which is if you look in the mirror every morning and you don't like what you're doing, it's time to do something else. And, you know, when I got into dental sales, you know, I had heard that, you know, medical sales was the major league baseball of sales. And then when I got into it, I found out quickly that there's a difference between medical sales and dental sales. And, and the interesting thing is- Yeah, instead of Jake Gyllenhaal, you're getting more like, uh, you know, John C. Riley. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then, you know, and actually in my interview, you know, the gentleman that's the president of our company that Shane and I work for, you know, he asked me the same question. He goes, money doesn't motivate you. And I said, it does not. I said, you telling me that I can't do something is what's motivating me. You're telling me- 
that the state of Kentucky has never done a million dollars in sales. All right, watch. And I did it in the first full year. Then you telling me that this can't be done or this can't be done. And it's just finding motivation. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, I've read a lot of books and, and, and seen a lot of videos of Michael Jordan, for instance. And that's just our era from what we grew up in. And one of the best stories of them all is, is that Michael, before every game, made up some story in his head about who he was playing against. So if he was playing against Charles Barkley, who was just one of his best friends, he would make up some story that Charles said something about his wife and that would fuel him and, and motivate him. And, and that is what that is what I do on a daily basis, monthly basis, yearly basis is that, OK, well, we you know, we're going to finish at two, three, two, four this year. Well, let, let's set the bar for two, seven, because we already know BioHorizon is going to set the bar at two, six. So let's just go a little bit ahead. It's kind of like the law of the lid. I like that a lot. You got to understand this asshole. Money doesn't motivate him, but damn if awards and trips don't, because he's on every damn trip, every freaking award now. He's on the stage like 47 times every time we well, have a national I, sales I, meeting. I disagree with that one. And let me tell you this. So I'm real big. I'm a goal-oriented guy. So I'm the guy that on my notes on my Apple phone for the last 18, 19 years, every year at midnight, I write my goals for that following year. And so since I've gotten in the habit of doing that, then when I go to write next year's, I go back and read the year before. And one of the first goals that I ever set for myself for BioHorizons was to win the Rookie of the Year award. And it came down to me and another guy. And uh, the story that I was told was that, you know, we're going to give this person the Rookie of the Year because we're going to put you on the incentive trip because you you won both. But we don't want you to actually have both. And and I'll never forget, I was so mad. And I always talk about this to this day because, you know, growing up being a guy that wanted to play in the NBA, all I dreamed about was walking across that stage and shaking the commissioner's hand with that hat on. And I'll never forget telling our boss, Mark Lepresti, you took that away from me that night. I was so ready to walk across the stage and shake your hand and look at the smile at the camera, blah, 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 blah. And it's kind of a joke we have back and forth, so to speak. So goals are the big thing. Um, don't, you know, I don't want to. Don't want to mess that up or not let that get interpreted the correct way. Goals are really big. Um, and at the end of the day, when we're standing on that stage and taking that award, we have to that those are the moments we have to smile and smell the roses and stop for a minute and pat ourselves on the back for everything we've we've gone through because we've put our family, we put our spouse, we put our kids, we put everything that we wanted to do on the back burner in order to get to that point on that stage. So I think it's worth to stop and take a, and smell the roses. Yeah. And the funny thing about Lepresti too, flip that role. If that was him coming to you, he would be even madder. <laughs> That's one of the most competitive you yep. ever yep. meet. He's a great man. guy too. No, I think competition is necessary in anything you do. I know for me, it motivates the hell out of me when we're doing stuff with IC and, and DIA. Cause I basically like this David and Goliath approach of I'm going after the big, big conglomerates and dictators of dentistry to try to disrupt the way we think and do. And it motivates the hell out of me laying in bed at night thinking that they're just laying around thinking about me when they're probably not even scratching their radar, right? They don't even, half of them probably don't even know who the hell I am. But uh, it makes me motivated every night laying in there like, oh yeah, there's meeting about how to take me down. And tomorrow I'm going to white wake up and kick their ass. <laughs> so I totally empathize with that. And being able to walk into a room and make someone change their opinion of you. Sure. Like, oh, this... This little young whippersnapper, blah, 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 blah. You know what? I want to walk in to a room and I want to have the same feeling that people get from watching that Apple commercial about, you know, changing the way we think, changing the status quo. 
And that's the big motivation to put a dent in the industry. That is, I mean, honestly, to put a dent in the industry is the reason why I did not decide to go to dental school, because I feel like my calling is to help the people in our industry because they're great clinicians. They just don't know how to run a business. So I feel like that's my calling to help them do those things where instead of being greedy and deciding to go to dental school, that was, that was my thought process. It's tough as it is, right? Because there's so many gimmicky things out there saying that this is the answer. It's like you're stranded in the desert and there's a million signs saying that there's water here. And then every time you show up, it's just dry sand, right? So right. It, that is the most challenging part. I would say if I were a clinician, especially young coming up, like what the hell is validated? What, where's the, what do I use to sift through the bullshit in this whole thing? You know, cause everybody's trying to, you know, there's a million guys out there or girls out there with how, learn how to run or practice the right way and market it like this and da, 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 da. Then you go and look at their books and hell, they're not making more than 150,000 a year from their practice. You know, they're, 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 the real hustle is them trying to sell these books or courses that, that is really kind of built on, on false pretense of that they were successful in their own practice. Well, and Blake, I got a little story about London talking about changing perceptions when you walk in the door. Like I used to get the, well, you look like you're 12 and then I had kids and age drastically. So, but you get the, who is this young guy running a company? Well, this dude comes in, I have him come to a study club for me. Uh, he's like third month in I, and it was for Demo and Curry uh, and some other young up and coming guys study club in Atlanta. And he had just started by Horizons. I come, he comes down, we never met face to face and he comes in with like a pullover and like Jordan's on to present. And I'm sitting there like, what the hell? And so, you know, those guys, they're sitting there and be like, who is this guy? And then about five minutes into it, everybody's like, all right, then you know what the hell you're talking about. That's the <laughs> ultimate swipe. When you walk in, get them off balance with the J's and then you close out like a boss. You should have just dropped the mic and done a jump away fader. <laughs> <laughs> All they did was ask questions about his uh, his shoe collection at the end. Well, it it's funny because I, I got to speak uh, last weekend in Destin for uh, the uh, SERP alumni group. And I was speaking on CAD CAM and stuff. And, and that was one of the things that they talked about was I actually was wearing dress shoes. And Dr. McCracken said, London, what? Is, are you okay? Why, why are you wearing dress shoes? And I said, well, here's the deal. I had no idea how laid back you all were. I mean, everybody, I mean, they actually held this alumni event on the beach in Destin, which was phenomenal. And I said, you know, when everyone told me that it was laid back and I could wear shorts, I was scared to death y'all were running a prank on me. And I haven't worn dress shoes since my interview <laughs> four years ago, almost. And uh, it's just my thing. I mean, to me, if I'm going to get up and speak or I'm going to get up and do my thing in front of people, I'm going to be me. I'm going to be genuine. I'm going to, I hate to use this reference, but I'm going to be Allen Iverson. I'm going to have I'm going to be in my own skin. So therefore I can, I can perform at the high level. What do we talk about? Practice? Not a game. Not a game. We talk about practice, coach. Practice. <laughs> I love that story, dude. All right. Well, Hey, you'd mentioned basketball. See, I had the same aspirations when I was a kid, but nobody told me I was only going to be five feet tall growing up. Are you five feet tall? Well, on my toes I am, but my highest level was maybe like rec league MVP or something. I wasn't that good and, and never will be, but you actually played some college ball, right? Yes, sir. Eight minutes in three years. That's a lot more. That's eight more minutes than I ever played. I was say it's nine more minutes than I ever got invited to play. So it was, it, 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 yes, it was, it was fun. It was one of those things where, you know, I had the opportunity to go to a couple other places and my uh, AAU mentor, which is Sharon Wilkerson, who played at IU, um, sent me down one day and said, you know, hey, where are you thinking about going? And 
these were the two schools that I was looking at, Indiana State um, and NC State. Herb Sendek had just taken the NC State job, and I was really leaning more towards Indiana State. It was close to home. Um, and Sharon sent me down and said, hey, you know, you're you're about to have a kid. College basketball is as far as you're going to go. Well, no, no, no. I'm going to go to the league. No, you're not. <laughs> you're, you're barely six feet tall. Come from a well-rounded, well-off family. You know, you're going to do something in the corporate world. So let's find the biggest school you can go to. Let's sit on the end of the bench and then let's enjoy the ride. And, and that, and that, that's how it all happened. And if you brought Indiana state, by the way, people would have just forgot about Larry bird. I'm sure. <laughs> sure. They would have. I don't know if I'd have looked good in that Sycamore Jersey though, to be honest with you. You know, you got Shane here who makes a dad bod look good. And you got me who looks like Matthew McConaughey in Dallas Buyers Club. So, you know, you're not talking to two very <laughs> physically successful people here. <laughs> I just, I, I mean, I know we all lie about our height and our, and our weight, but I'm just laughing at the fact that Shane thinks he's five feet tall. <laughs> <laughs> no, man, I tell you what, man, you've had one hell of a journey. And I, I really look forward to the book. I know for me personally, meeting you in person was a very entertaining experience. We had a lot of off-channel conversation and very relatable stories that won't be shared until the statute of limitations runs out. But, <laughs> you know, I, I think that it, it takes people like you in this industry to give it a good name. You know, look, you're out there to take care of yourself and, and earn an income for your family, but you also could do it in many other ways. And you choose to do it this way. And that is applaudable because, you know, you really care about what you're doing and what you're selling. Often, I think that, that the reputation or the the way that salespeople are viewed as money hungry, just fast talkers. And while we're not just sitting around eating Adderall and hoping to fill our pockets, we're actually out there studying our asses off to try to understand everything and anything about the materials and products you're using. Because if we're ever put on the spot in the OR during surgery and we go, I'm sorry, don't know, don't have an answer for that, can't help you there, you're throwing a uh, a 77R elevator at her ass across the room, right? You're, you're, right? you're not happy. So I think that, man, you're really doing a great job out there. And I really look forward to sharing some bourbon with you in Kentucky. Man, I told you, dude, he is all in. He, he You definitely belong on this well, podcast. Well, you, you guys man. are doing a phenomenal job. And I mean, you know, your first podcast really hit home for me. I mean, it was one of those things where it's like, finally, somebody's putting something together that no matter who you work for or what you do in our industry, you're saying the things that we all want to say behind closed doors. And that is, there's not a lot of value in sitting behind the table at, at these trade shows and at these booths. There's more value at the being at the bar or taking them out to dinner and so on and so on. And so you guys have really hit home on a lot of great things. You guys are doing a phenomenal job. So kudos to you all as well. By the way, before we close out, who's everybody playing this week? Or, or We got the last game for the Fantasy Football League, which Steve's a part of. It's the last game? No, no, of the week is Monday night. So I, I am already beat Jim Howell's ass, dude. I mean, it was just a Who's it was the a whipping. Patterson rep, Jeff? Or no? Corey. Corey Follis. Of- I'm playing I'm playing Jeff from Acteon, I think. Uh no. You gonna win? It's like I'm gonna be a, a just sneak away with the loss here. Really shitting it up this year. I hate, I hate this. I'm still angry with you, Shane. <laughs> That's okay. This is one of those things where when Shane asked me to do it, I looked at my wife and said, I'm not doing this. I hate fantasy football because it takes over. And what I mean by it takes over is, is that I don't like to lose. So therefore, three or four hours before the fantasy draft, I've got three years of fantasy numbers in front of me on my on my laptop. I've got 2018, 2019, 2017, 2016. 
Um, I've got Moneyball with his fantasy football lineup over yeah, here running yeah. algorithms. <laughs> I've, got, I've, I've got which guys just signed a new contract, which guys didn't sign the contract, which guys are on their last year of their contract. And it, it made me so frustrated to the point where I'm like, okay. And then the draft comes through and I'm like, all right. So I got golf from the Rams and I got Gurley from the Rams and you know, and I got the um, the star running back in Denver. And, okay, I feel good. And then it just all goes to hell. And, I mean, Gurley doesn't get a touchdown for until like week three, and it's it's just one of those things where it just it just it, it frustrates the hell out of you. And then all day Sunday, I don't care about who's who's winning, who's well, like who's playing the game. I'm sitting there just updating that fantasy app every five minutes. So my wife's looking at me and go, "Can you put the phone down?" I'm like, no, we're playing Damon this week, and we can't lose to Damon at BioHorizons because that's all we're going to hear about. Well, it does look like you guys are both going to lose this week and have and go from two and two to two and three. I'm going to win to be three and two, which obviously I'm going to be ranked higher than you guys. Blake, you still got a shot, buddy. You still got a shot if Mayfield just loses his freaking mind. They're, they're calling him the Johnny Manziel of football on Barstool Sports this morning. They're like, Johnny Manziel 2.0. He needs to stay off Instagram and get his ass working on the field. I don't know about, I don't know about that one. He's putting in a lot more work than Manziel did. Yeah, I like Mayfield, dude. I just I just think when you're loud and boisterous like that, the good's going to come with that and the players are going to love you, but you're going to get a lot of flack from the press, but screw it. That's kind of like Steve London. Dude, it's over professional here. sports. I mean, look at the fact that, you know, Baltimore Ravens fans were loving what Lamar was doing and he's had two bad weeks and now they want to cut him and go out and get Kaepernick. It just Oh, and you Gruden's know. gone this morning. They they called Jay Gruden in for a 5 a.m. meeting. All the fires asked like five minutes. <laughs> well, first of all, if your boss calls you at 5 a.m., don't answer the phone. <laughs> Lesson learned. <laughs> all right, guys. Well, Steve, we really appreciate you being on this episode. I hope to have you back again, man. We'll have to do it live and, and me not screw up the recording next time. I think you guys need to – I think it needs to be live at one of the bourbon distilleries in Kentucky. Sold. Done. And then, and then, and then, when we get finished with that, we'll head over to Rep Arena and catch you know that big Kentucky basketball team that's going to win it all this year. As long as you supply the Jays to where I'm in, I'll be no there. Doubt this man has some contacts there. Well, I, I can hook you up. I know Shane probably wears like a size two in little kids, so I think I can pull some stuff from my from my little boy. He'll show up in some freaking Clarks, you know what I mean? So it's okay. It's actually size husky. <laughs> Hey, I'm 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 just happy that Shane gave me an implant compare shirt that was a large. I mean, I haven't worn a large T-shirt since the first Bush administration. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, man. Well, again, Steve, thanks so much, Blake. Always a pleasure, my friend. Thanks, everybody, and uh, we'll catch you guys next time. Thanks for listening to the All In Podcast. See you next time.